Analyze Asia is brought to you by Esavel. Do you manage your own IT for distributed teams across Asia Pacific? Then you know how painful that can be. Esavel helps your in-house team by taking cumbersome tasks off their hands and giving them the tools to manage IT effectively. Get help across Asia Pacific from onboarding, procuring devices to real-time IT support and offboarding. With our state-of-the-art platform, gain full control of all your IT infrastructure in one place. Our team of IT support pros are keen to help you grow. Check out esevel.com and get a demo today. Use our referral code ASIA for 10% off. Terms and conditions apply. Because you can learn the hard skills, but if you don't know what holds you back, you don't know who you are, you don't know what your triggers are, you don't know what motivates you, what upsets you, how do you bring the best version of yourself every single day to what you do and get better? We need to pay attention to that because the whole idea is you cannot anticipate change ahead of you, but you got to learn how to ride the waves of change ahead of you more gracefully. So you don't want the waves to come slamming at you, but you need to turn around and ensure that when they come, you can maneuver, you can write the weights of change. Welcome to Analyze Asia, the premier podcast dedicated to dissect the pulse of business, technology and media in Asia. I'm Bernard Leung and we live in a brave new world. With rising tensions across the globe and uncertainty in the economy, change is inevitable for anyone out there. With me today, my mentor provided kind guidance to me over the past decade when I first joined as a council member in the Singapore Computer Society. Haresh Kuchandani, Vice President of Autodesk in Asia-Pacific and now an author of his new book, Growth by Choice. Haresh, welcome to the show. Hey, Vinod, thank you. It's so good to be here. As I've actually read your new book, Growth by Choice, I decided to dedicate this conversation to two parts. One part is to talk about your book and the other part we will talk about what's Autodesk doing and I myself is also a big customer of your current company. You certainly are. I wanted to start off by asking you on your origin story because in the book itself, you discuss your career trajectory. I didn't know this until I read the book. How did you start your career and can you share more about your experience before joining Autodesk? It's a great question. So firstly, thank you for reading the book, Bernard. I really appreciate the, the support and the curiosity. I started my career as a flight steward with Singapore Airlines. So I'm sure there are some people who have served coffee or tea in my younger days and they would not have known it was me. But so when you think about starting a career as a flight steward with Singapore Airlines, it's not a traditional career path one takes to kind of building a career in technology. So I'm incredibly grateful for that journey. But very quickly, I realized that's not where I wanted to be. Not because it wasn't a great industry or a great airline. It was incredible, but it wasn't what I wanted to do in life. And it was a nice discovery. I left and I started my own business a little bit. I worked with someone and, and this is the days where there was no dot-com or VC funding and stuff like that. I had an idea. Someone said, hey, come, I'll create a subsidiary. You go run it and we'll do the profit sharing. That's what I did. And I did it for a year, built up a very nice niche, successful business selling high-end cameras to Japan, cold calling. I used to go to, to the office at 9 p.m. at night after, after 9 to send faxes to Japan because IDD rates were cheaper after night. That's, those were the days, right? Now you don't even blink an eye. You just do it anytime you want. And, and then after that, I, I, I joined an electronics retail company and I, I was there for a couple of years, did really well. And, and then I got a call and then I, I, I ended up leaving the company after three years to join a distribution company, a technology distribution company. And 
the transition from the electronics to the distribution company was interesting because I actually developed the business model that draws the convergence of IT retailing with computer electronics retailing. Uh, sorry, with uh, 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 what you call um, consumer electronics retailing. Mm. So that was an interesting convergence. So suddenly you had this big computer stores or other consumer electronics stores starting to sell IT products. So we b- built the business model and they kind of took off. And then I ended up getting a call one day from Microsoft and then they said, come, come join us to run their consumer business in 1997. And Bernard, you would know this really well. In 1997, Microsoft didn't have much of a consumer business. So it was a very tiny business, but it was Microsoft. So I joined them. So I joined Microsoft with zero technology background, which was really interesting when you think about how daunting that was for me. But I I worked really hard. And six months into the job, I actually called up my headhunter and said, get me out of here. I said, what did you do? Where did you put me? And she says, what happened? And I was just explaining to her, and, and I came from a different background from a lot of the people who are traditional IT people. So for the same problem, we saw it in different angles. There was constant clash. And after a while, it wore me down. And I said, get me out of here. She says, okay, I will. And she says, I'll call you back. And I waited 19 years for that call. <laughs> and clearly it never came, but it was the best call I never got back from a headhunter. And I ended up staying in Microsoft for 19 years, building and growing and, and, and learning over a, period, over a career that I'm incredibly grateful for. So I ended up running sales and marketing organizations in different parts. I ended up doing transformational work for the company where I got thrown into big roles to, to transform businesses. I made a lot of mistakes along the way and I ended up more importantly, over the 19 years, learning about myself, learning about technology and its impact in the world and how it can actually be a force for good for the world we live in. So that was 19 years and then I left uh, and then I, I joined Autodesk for the last four and a half years. And I've been super inspired by what Autodesk does, its technology and the disruption that you know is happening in the industries we serve and how we're partnering with our customers to enable a really new way of work to help create and 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 to help design and, and build a better world, which is an in, super inspiring mission that we're on as a company. Mm. I'm going to follow your Autodesk story to a bit later in okay. the conversation, but I want to go back to your book, Growth by Choice. What is the inspiration behind writing the book and who is the audience? So I went through this whole career in, in technology and I saw so many people getting disrupted. There's so much literature out there about organizational disruption, business model disruption, so many futurists talking about the future. But there's not enough conversation around personal disruption. It seems to be an after the fact. So the question I had for myself is, if we know the world is changing, then why are we not? owning our own personal disruption proactively for ourselves so we can thrive in a world of change versus waiting to be disrupted and then hoping we survive. And that was, that was the question mark for me. And it was a question mark for me because I've seen so many people with incredible credentials, educational credentials and stuff, get disrupted and then start to panic about what they're doing and, and, and where do they go and worry about how they put food on the table, that it got me thinking about why are we not then proactively disrupting ourselves? And disruption doesn't mean you, you change completely or you quit your job and you go do something completely different. It's, it's, there's a different aspect of disruption and growth for an individual. 
And then my father passed away two years ago. He was one of the early deaths in Singapore because of COVID. It was 90, so he had good innings, but it was still tough losing him because we were in a lockdown, if you remember. And in that lockdown, I had a lot of time to introspect and to think about this journey that I've been on, this question that I've always been pondering. And then I looked at my kids and I was like, you know, the world my kids are going in, how are they going to thrive? So I wanted to capture my voice finally so that my kids had something with them in the event, in my eventuality, that they can read and refer to that could be a little bit timeless in that sense. So I ended up writing the book, Growth by Choice. And my worst case scenario was three people read the book, which is my wife and two kids, which was an assumption in itself. And that's how it started. And it's been really good. The reception for the book has been really good. I'm super blessed, super grateful. And we're about to do a second print run on the book shortly as well. And, you know, when you ask about audience, the one thing I realized about growth, Bernard, is growth is unique to each one of us. And you will know Harari, the historian, said it really well when he said, we're entering an era now that regardless of your age, the process of learning doesn't happen just in a school and then you get out of school and you go work. The process of learning is an ongoing process. And it's an ongoing process because the definition of stability and the stability of an identity is continuously evolving. It doesn't exist, that stability that we seek. And it goes through the ages. It doesn't matter what age you're at. So growth by choice will resonate differently with different people who are in the different parts of their life cycle. And, and so it's a, it's a book that so far from the feedback I've received from people of all ages, has basically driven the ability for people to sit down and think on the questions being asked. So it's a broad, it's a book that will touch broad audiences, meant to provoke, meant to unlock, and hopefully meant to inspire a series of actions for themselves. Mm. I'm sorry to hear about your dad's passing. I have a similar experience early this year. I oh. want to ask, what, what are the key themes of the book? It's a, it's a really good question. And when I think about key themes, I struggle for, for one reason. One reason is because depending on where you are in your life cycle of your, your, your job or your life or your, your thought or your context of who you are and where you are, it, different things will get taken. You will take away different uh, aspects of the book that will resonate with you. And whether it's the cost of inaction to the art principle and frameworks that help you think about how you grow. There are different aspects of it. But if, if I were to turn around and think about three key areas of the book, I'd say, one, it's meant to provoke. And when I think about provoke, the book doesn't give you answers. The book provokes thought. It, it basically pushes a lot of questions for you to think about in the context of who you are and in the context of where you want to go. Second thing, I think the book is about unlocking insight and introspection. Again, I repeat, the book doesn't give you answers. There are a lot of people giving answers out there, but I think it's important for you to discover who you are in order for you to be able to then decide what help you need in order for you to enable your growth. And the last thing is, the book is meant to inspire action. All right? It's not meant to put fear of God on anybody, but it's meant to inspire action because once you go through this process of discovery, the book hopefully inspires you to get comfortable with who you are, to get comfortable with de dealing with a lot of the fear that we all have in some of the decisions and choices we make, 
in order for us to enable our growth going forward in a proactive and deliberate manner. One key part of the book, which I really enjoyed, is the section on the concept of return on inaction. It actually resonated with me. I actually read your book one week before my birthday. And after reading that chapter twice, I actually went and take action on that. But I would rather hear it from you. Can you elaborate on the idea of return on inaction and what it means for people who are navigating their careers? I would love to hear your story one day, Bernard. So we, we, I'm going to hold you to that one. When we think about the moments that we all live in, in a lot of these moments, what we don't see or realize is these moments are our biggest growth opportunities. But a lot of the times we pass by these moments because of choices that we make, sometimes driven by the wrong forces, forces of fear, forces of missing out, forces of failure, or the perceptions of failure. And sometimes in, in, in the context of different cultures, there are different reasons that drive that. But what we don't explore enough of is I decide not to make a leap. I decide not to do something, but because I'm a fearful or I don't want to fail or I don't want to take the risk. But more often than not, we don't sit down and think about what if I don't do it? What is the cost of not taking action? Most of the time, we explore the cost of taking action. So in the business context, what's the ROI? Oh, the ROI is too low. Don't do it. Take Nokia, for example. Nokia was a great example where they didn't do anything despite the fact that they had such a massive advantage over other competitors. But that cost of inaction clearly costed them. And we know how that story ended. So return of inaction is getting people to think about what's the cost of not doing something. In the context of your career, we make decisions for a variety of different reasons. And we want to take on a bigger job, we want to take on a stretched job. And, and sometimes there are a variety of reasons that stop us from doing that or stop us from proactively doing that because we may be in a comfort zone. We may, we may have a variety of different reasons or excuses for not doing it. So in the context of the career, at any point in time, I think it's important for people to turn around and think about what's the cost of not doing it, as much as thinking about the cost of doing it. Because we want stability. We, we, ultimately, we, we will not want to take risks. But more and more, the cost of not doing it is greater than the cost of doing it. More and more in a world of constant change. So how do we get to a firm footing, stay grounded, and have a method to the madness in terms of how we think and explore it through these questions so that we can make conscious choices for ourselves in a way that can pay dividends compounded over time, reflected in how we grow throughout the passage of time. I will take you up on that. On someday, I'll tell you what did happen during that period of time when I was reading your book and getting on the point. So can you talk about the growth framework which you advocated in the book itself? So when we think about growth and, and we think about development plans, what I've often seen is we talk about the, hey, how do you build competency? We talk about hard skills. We talk about, hey, go network. We talk about go find a mentor to broaden your network. We talk about take a stretch project so that you can learn a new area of business. We talk a lot about all of that. And, it, and I think that's an important component. But the growth framework is to provide a slightly different point of view with regards to the other components necessary to enable individual growth. And the whole intent is to provide that perspective so that we can unlock the better versions of ourselves every single day. Because you can learn the hard skills, 
But if you don't know what holds you back, you don't know who you are, you don't know what your triggers are, you don't know what motivates you, what upsets you, how do you bring the best version of yourself every single day to what you do and get better? And we need to pay attention to that because the whole idea is you cannot anticipate change ahead of you, but you got to learn how to ride the waves of change ahead of you more gracefully. So you don't want the waves to come slamming at you, but you need to turn around and ensure that when they come, you can maneuver, you can ride the waves of change. And it becomes incredibly important also for the mental health of people. And more often mm -hmm. than not, we're also busy making a living. We forget to live. We forget to create space for ourselves. We forget to turn around and ensure that we nurture our mindsets now and not when a calamity happens. Because when a calamity happens, like the pandemic, our mental health gets tested. But if we're nurturing, creating space, nurturing our mental health on an ongoing basis, knowing who we are, imagine what more we can do when changes happen, when disruption of any nature comes our way. One of the things you introduce are tools to help you to navigate this period of time. So what are the tools, for example, the art principle that we need to equip ourselves with in order to deal with, I think in this period, we have both the great resonation and the great acceleration at the same time. So the art principle, which consists of about eight arts, is a starting point. I'm an executive coach, so I, I coach a lot of senior leaders and, and I've, I've, I've seen a lot of transformational work go on and transformation is not a single dimension. When you think about transformation, you've got to think about people, you've got to think about process, you could think about new ways of working, you've got to think about technology, but technology is just an enabler at the end of the day. And you, it's, it gets tricky with regards to how you start to enable transformation. So the art principle is meant to be for leaders or, or, or managers of teams, basically, who want a starting point. And I think there are eight arts in there, and I think are important for, 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 for leaders to, to take into consideration in a holistic manner in order for them to enable, in order for them to enable on an ongoing basis for the teams to, to be able to cover all the different angles needed in order for them to thrive or, or drive that change and transformation. So when you think about the art principle and you think about the context of where we are today and where we live in, the art principle has got different components of it. And I'll call it one or two. One is, for example, the physics of the future. It doesn't mean you as a leader understand the physics of the future only. It means the leadership of the organization and every single person needs to understand the physics of the future. Why is that important? Because it impacts the future of the company. Why is it important? Because we need to ensure all employees understand what the future is going to look like and how we're looking at the future. So understanding the physics of the future, if you start to peel it, requires understanding, requires acknowledging, requires aligning, requires communicating, requires bringing people along with you in the process. And many more often than not, you see a lot of people, a lot of that piece of work in terms of how do you bring people along? How do you explain the why? How do you connect the dots for people to understand and appreciate why organizations need to do some things they do? Doesn't happen. So the art principle gives you eight components in there to pay attention to. The other one that I like, and I think is super important, is mindfulness in the workplace. And how do we create mindfulness in the workplace? And, and, and my thinking around creating mindfulness in the workplace has expanded a little bit more. Because it's not just about, let's put some sleeping thoughts in there. It's not just about, let's have food and drinks. It's mindfulness is really needs to be 
a way organizations work, the culture of the organizations, the way organizations look after the total well-being of the individual. So it's not just about how much we pay someone. It's also about how do we think about purpose in the work each and every person does. It's about how do we provide them with the right benefits to support them in a very busy world. The paradox that we live in, Bernard, is we live in a world of finite time and attention, but infinite amounts of devices and data. So it becomes an incredibly busy world that we live in that if we don't take the time to look at the total well-being of our employees through a variety of different benefits, that is not just an HR issue, it's also a business issue, we can't get the best out of our teams and our people. So the ARC principle gives you components that is a starting point for leadership teams to start a discussion and then connect the dots in the context of who they are, in the context of where they want to go, and in the context of how they can potentially build a great outcome for the company in the future. It comes to this point, right? I'm thinking about what does the future of work look like? With the framework you have introduced in the book, how do you actually think about things like managing the performance of employees now remotely or maybe in a hybrid situation or then even the need to bring some of these people back into the office? I think a lot of companies are struggling. Everybody is trying to work out this transition. But I think it's not so much I'm looking for answers. I think just looking at what is the mental model to think about that through your book? It's a phenomenal question. And you got me thinking about this. I don't think about work as a place you go to. I think about work as something you do. And if work is something you do, then the place we go to is whether now we've got Zoom uh, or Teams and we've got the physical office space. These are spaces for collaboration. And spaces for collaboration, physical and digital spaces become imperative, especially in a hyper-connected world. So when you have a digital space, whether it's Teams or Zoom or whatever other collaboration platforms, and then you have the physical space, these are all meant to enable how we come together and collaborate. But when you think about the art principle and how it could potentially help or how it can potentially resonate, it, it forces organizations to think about, like what I said, how do you think about the total well-being of the individual in the context of this new way of working? How do you think about the other aspect of the, the, the art principle is harmonizing the old and the new? How do you think about multi-generational workforce in your organization? How do you become proactive and deliberate about thinking about these issues? So the framework basically starts to expose components that need to get discussed, needs to get aligned, and it may branch out into other things. But I think these eight components are important for discussion in order to thrive in a very different way of working going forward. Physical space, I think, becomes the ultimate collaboration platform, primarily because we're human beings. So the office space and the role of the office will evolve, in my opinion. And the hybrid platforms, I think there's going to be a whole bunch of technology that is going to make it a lot more interactive and engage, engagement, a lot more interactive and engaging for audiences to collaborate virtually. That evolution and you're, you're, you're a technologist yourself, I think will evolve in, in leaps and bounds and in very interactive ways in, in, a, in the near future. So the R principle can be a starting point to help 
organizations start to answer and have the right conversations around critical components of what the future work could look like for them. Because every organization, every culture, and every industry is different. My last question before we go to Autodesk, given that we covered your book, and this is a question I ask every guest on the show, what are the interesting career lessons that you can share with my audience? I'd say, one, growth is a long game. Play the long game. Don't play the short game on growth. Many of us, when we start out our careers, we play the short game. And, and the short game is me, 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 more, 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 more. And, and, and bigger titles, we want bigger cars and we jump from job to job. I think play the long game. Secondly, I'd say, get to know who you are. We're also busy making a living that we forget how to live and getting to know who we are, what motivates us, what our strengths, what our weaknesses and confronting the areas we can grow in and develop in is not something we spend time. And that's why the Growth by Choice advocates to create space because, you know, we all want to move, but meaningful movement will come from stillness. I actually genuinely believe that, right? And the third thing I'd say is define what success looks like for you. And, and that is different for everyone. And, and that's why in Growth by Choice, I, I wrote a, a little poem, which I, I'm surprised I wrote it as well because I'm not exactly a, a, a poet of any sorts. But you know, I wish I knew very much earlier in my youth what the definition of success, what does the definition of success mean? And for me, definition of success is really about how you enable success of others. And the more you enable success of others, I think the more success begets success for yourself. You know, these are few things that stood by me or stuck on me throughout my career as I, as I grew. And obviously, I, I got a lot more than three, but I, I just thought like... <laughs> and I think I'm one of those benefactors of, of your guidance on that. But I think I want to come to the main subject on all the deaths in Asia Pacific. And given you're a very successful business operator, there's a lot about Autodesk and digital transformation in today's world. I think, first of all, just for the audience, can you provide an introduction to Autodesk and its mission and vision from a global point of view? Okay, so we're a leading operator in 3D design, engineering, and entertainment software. So we actually have a belief in a better world that can be designed and made for all. So that's one of the reasons why our mission is to empower our customers, the innovators of the world, with software that helps them achieve better outcomes for their projects, for their products, for their businesses. So we want to actually help customers create new parts through our mission and our vision. New parts to efficiency, sustainability, and growth in, in this new world that we live in. And the whole idea is to advance their digital, digital transformation efforts and create new experiences and value. And this is important. And it's important because if you think about uh, the construction industry that we operate in an architect engineering industries, they account for about 30 to 40% of greenhouse gas, gas emissions globally. So it becomes a real imperative for digital transformation to feature and for us to partner with our customers with regards to how we, we do that. So our industry solutions and platform services help our customers take their ideas and make them real. So whether from design all the way to manufacturing, construction, production, and beyond, our ability to reach across multiple industries uniquely supports our customers' work is a big strength that we have. And we do this across the AEC industry, architecture, engineering, and construction, the design and manufacturing space, and the media and entertainment space. The last thing I'd say is this, it's around sustainability. That's a big feature for Autodesk as well in the work that we do with our customers and our partners. And sustainability for us has got three, three areas. One, how do we improve our operations? So we've got to live it. How do we advance 
sustainable business practices, you know, set the standard in our culture, our governance, our operations, and then how do we align and activate diverse employees to make a positive impact at work so that we can also then do the same with our customers and our partners. Number two, how do we partner with our customers? So how do we empower innovators, right, to harness what are the biggest currencies in the world, data? How do we help them automate? How do we help them generate insights to optimize impact of how they think about design and make decisions so that we can advance a more sustainable, resilient, and equitable world. And the last thing for us is really how do we advance our industries that we serve? So how do we accelerate industry transformation through cross-sector collaboration, policy advocacy with governments, and catalyzing innovation between and beyond industries? So that overlap is starting to happen as well. The sustainability features very, very strongly. And you mm. can read more about our sustainability efforts in our impact report that is something that we 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 publicize we publish every year, and it's available online as well. Mm. I want to circle back to that question just now. I have stopped halfway, so I want to know now what what is your current role in coverage in order there. So I'm the vice president for Asia Pacific, and I'm responsible for the strategic direction and overall profitability of our region, our business in our region of Asia Pacific region. So I cover all of Asia Pacific except Japan. I had, I had a good fortune of meeting Jonathan Knowles, one of the CTO co-founders of Autodesk, and actually had some good quality time with him. I think one of the biggest things that have changed for Autodesk is how the Autodesk expands from, from being a product company to a platform company. And, and I think this is something that also helps me into thinking from the company perspective, how do I collaborate with Autodesk, not just as a user of your, your product, but now as a user of your services in the ecosystem itself. That's a great question. You know, transformation, and you know this well, transformation takes time. It doesn't happen overnight. And we're on the journey. But in order for us to be able to, to transform our company, we need to have a, a view of the future. We need to have a clarity of a vision in terms of what we want to do and why we do what we, we turn around and do. Uh, and transformation is more than just about technology, going from platform to product. It's also changing the way we work. It's also how do we think about scaling our teams, our, our ecosystem, and so on and so forth, and the value that we can bring to address imperative needs that are out there in the marketplace. So when you, when you think about the industries that we serve, you know, people remain in silos in their respective jobs with disconnected processes, and they're burdened by data that is not being used or can be more useful than it currently is. And we've seen that for a while now. So basically, the time is now for our customers to fully realize the benefits of digital transformation. So our cloud capabilities will empower the innovators and creators that we serve to be more productive and more profitable. More importantly, to also learn to be resilient. And we saw that during COVID and how we helped customers port their on-prem solutions onto the cloud in order for them to continue collaborating, in order for them to continue the business that they and the, and the projects that they had committed to. So when you think about the transformation journey, we started our transformation from an on-prem maintenance-based licensing to a subscription-based licensing. We completed that transition very successfully, and, and now we're on the next stage where we're evolving and transforming to a platform company. So our digital transformation journey will now feature us connecting workflows in the cloud for better outcomes. So last month, we introduced three industry clouds, 
to the market. One is Autodesk Former, Autodesk Flow, and Autodesk Fusion. And part of the Autodesk platform, which was formerly known as Forge, these industry clouds will now connect processes to drive new ways of working. All right. So when you think about Autodesk Former, Autodesk Former is basically the industry cloud for AEC. So it will unify building information modeling or BIM for short workflows for teams who design, build, and operate in the build environment. Autodesk Flow is the industry cloud for ME, media and entertainment. And it will connect customer workflows data and teams across the entire production lifecycle from earliest concept to final delivery. And the last one is Autodesk Fusion. And Autodesk Fusion is basically the industry cloud for design and manufacturing. And it will connect customers' data and people across the entire product development lifecycle from top floor to shop floor. So it's very exciting in terms of what we're trying to do. And when I talked about the platform services just now, that underpins these three clouds. So the set of cross-industry APIs and services, formerly known as Forge, is now Autodesk Platform Services, and the three clouds will sit on this on the Autodesk Platform Services. So the, this mm -hmm. platform service will provide customers with the ability to customize solutions, create innovative workflows, and integrate other tools and data with our platforms. All right. So mm -hmm. more details are emerging. I mean, there's a lot out there, but more details emerging. But this is where our ecosystem will start to connect onto the platforms through open APIs to enable more connected workflows, more seamless flow of data across the platform. Interesting in how Autodesk is now thinking like a platform company to support and advance companies in their digital transformation journeys in the way you have outlined it. And of course, being a platform company means you also need to bring in new users and developers into the system. How does Autodesk educate them and bring them on board? That's a great question. I mean, when you think about digital transformation and in a platform company, it's, it's also about will the platform that we're building and we will we as a company be able to see through this in the next many, many years. And given our track record, making sure that our customers are betting on a platform that can, can grow with us is going to be key. And, and I think that that's what makes us unique as well. But you, know, you, you talk about bringing new users and developers into the system, being a platform company, you're absolutely right. But it's also not about just new. It's also about the existing set of users and developers and how do we bring them along with us. So we're doing both, all right? Mm -hmm. So future skilling is essentially what you're talking about. And it, it involves taking a forward-thinking mindset, skill set, and tool set to thrive in this work and beyond. So Autodesk is investing in students and educators around the world. And we're investing from understanding the deeply impactful role academia plays in the global future and essentially what they want. And we're doing this across the globe, including in Singapore, by the way, some great examples in Singapore. So globally and in APAC, we're empowering educators and students to succeed through a learning library, professional software, and built-in in-source libraries, certifications, applied training, product support, and support for educators. So there's a variety of different programs available. We're also expanding access to a broad portfolio of design, technology programs, and communities that empower learners to problem-solve very pressing design and engineering challenges. So we're going beyond simple upskilling or reskilling. We're really starting to think about future skilling that prepares designers, makers, and doers for tomorrow's world. So there are a couple of things, a couple of ways we do it, to your point. One is the Autodesk Training Centers 
the authorized, authorized training centers, which is very similar to what a lot of other organizations have. And they are part of the authorized learning partner community in APAC. And by engaging ATCs, students, educators, consumers, industry professionals, and businesses can explore different ways to design and make the future of things, right? We're also working with academia as part of that to enable curriculum for people in schools to be able to learn how to use some of these software that prepares them for uh, being ready to work in the global workforce. We also help educators prepare students for new and current workflows with industry-validated certification and in-demand skills training. So they have access to coursework, learning parts, instructor resources, and ready-to-use learning content to begin teaching authorized products for mechanical engineering, manufacturing, and construction. You can see some world-class labs in our schools, even in Singapore, but in, and across the globe. Mm. So training and learning resources that we provide to educators and students range from technology and tools, which are free professional software, built-in resource libraries that I talked about, learning libraries, support for educators, professional development, collaborate, inquire, share, do building communities for them to interact with and learn from, product support, certifications, and applied learning. And then lastly, we also host Autodesk University, which is our flagship event every single year. And it's our design and make conference for innovators around the world. And it's an opportunity to learn and connect with industry experts from across the globe who are progressing architecture, engineering, construction, design, manufacturing, media, and entertainment industries forward. So a lot of our customers from across the Asia region were there as well this year um, at Autodesk University. And it's something that I think many of them look forward to. So there's a variety of different things that we're, we're doing, not just to, in terms of enabling reskilling and upskilling, but also helping them think about the future by bringing people together to collaborate and learn from one another. Mm. One interesting thing that came out from thinking about from what you have alluded to earlier is that they, they have been they have actually been used in manufacturing, construction, or even media and entertainment. I think yeah. one curious question I do think about is, and because I'm from construction and it's quite heavily relies on beam modeling and Autodesk on that front. What what is this current role in terms of digital transformation for companies out there thinking about? It's not just that process of building that 3D modeling data, but actually the usage of that data moving forward, right? So I think convergence is a, is a really interesting thing that's going on right now. And I say thing, you know, you could call it a trend, you could call it an evolution, but convergence is, is really big because the way workflows, processes, and the ways people work, there's a lot that we can learn across industries coming together. And so during the global pandemic, the pace of adaptation has accelerated in terms of some of these uh, workflows and tools. So we have adjusted to working remotely and contending with safety protocols for on-site work while processes, supply chains, and economies have been tested in unprecedented ways. You know, we've, we've seen that, right? So to turn the challenges that we talk about today into tomorrow's opportunities, designers and makers are actually leaning on technology to achieve better outcomes. And the goal is to optimize, whether we optimize the use of energy and materials or increase resilience of infrastructure and supply chains or learn new skills to adapt, to thrive. A new era of convergence is coming up and that's something we're seeing. And a new era of convergence with industries and multidisciplinary teams that are blending together. And that's what we see emerging fairly rapidly. So converging industries and ways of making are creating new 
embedded novel for professionals in the AEC manufacturing and entertainment. And specifically four ways I would call up Bernard. One, workflow coordination. So using digital tools to coordinate work processes across teams and systems and across supply chains and ecosystems. And innovators can automate tasks and discover data and insights that reveal outcomes they never thought possible. And I'll share an example later because there's some really interesting stuff here. Second thing is on-demand customization. So customers are experiencing and expecting greater choice and customization more than ever. And innovators are tapping into this demand by taking advantage of mass assembly of tailored products and by precision crafting unique components. Third thing is virtual creation. So by building rich information models, innovators are now increasingly able to embody their creative side, surface insights, and build immersive experiences. And the last thing is continuous reshaping. Innovative owners and operators of existing things can now continue to reshape products and projects beyond the construction site or the factory floor or the production studio based on ongoing performance, customer experience, feedback, and changing needs. So we see that happening live in four different ways that's influencing convergence in the industry. An example I wanted to share with you, just one example, which I think everyone can relate to, is Disney. I think many people have been to a Disney theme park, right? I know I have. I hope you have. Right? And when you think about the Disney theme park, it is best known for its films and theme parks. But at the core of Disney theme parks is storytelling. It takes combined work of architects, artists, technologists, and engineers to create very immersive experience with Disney theme parks. So that's a great example of convergence. And in all of this, BIM is coordinating, is key to coordinating these diverse disciplines for the design, fabrication, and installation of these Disney parks and attractions. So what we enjoy is a massive amount of sophistication that happens beyond behind the scenes that enables these experiences. And that I think is one of the best examples of convergence that we're seeing live in, in our time. Mm. And obviously, Disney is a very good case study. Can you talk about the other interesting customer stories about adopting Autodesk, maybe something in the Asia Pacific? Yeah, absolutely. And we have quite a fair bit. And I, I won't go into great detail, but I'll just share some highlights with you, some of my favorite highlights. Jewel, Changi Airport in Singapore, an iconic spot for, for all of us. This customers were part of bringing the Jewel to life, such as the VMW Group responsible for producing the architectural visualization, right? And they used a bunch of products, Revit, Max Maya, Nevis Works, BIM360, AutoCAD. I don't think I, I want to go too much into the details of the products, but that gives you a sense of what they did. We also do some really interesting work with NGOs that use our software. One of it is with, in Myanmar. And I'm really proud of this because through videos, I met the partner that did that. And basically, this company called Proximity Design creates products and services to help Myanmar's rural families save labor and increase their earning power. So one of the products that they design using Autodesk Solution is a solar pump to help farmers generate water for their pumps in place of a diesel engine. So the end product was affordable, durable, and easy to use thus helping the farmers become more productive and increasing their yields. But there's one more benefit. The other benefit is because of this innovation, it allowed of the kids of these farms to go to school instead of turning around and, and helping to, to figure out how they get water every single day for their homes. So it also enabled for these kids to go to school 
to learn and to help hopefully create a better future or a different future for themselves. So these are some examples, and there's a lot that we do in terms of um, uh, what you call in Indonesia, for example, where we're using 5D BIM to help them build and think and design their uh, infrastructure plan. Uh, work that we're doing with Korea, for example, in, in, in Hyundai, where we use generative design to help strengthen and lighten Hyundai's motors, futuristic walking car. Many of the great examples uh, that range from how do we help uh, our customers design and build green buildings and intelligent buildings to building infrastructure projects like the Bangalore Airport in a sustainable way, building it on time and building it on budget. Mm. And in, an interesting anecdote here, um, the company I'm currently with actually built Jewel. So there's a lot of Autodesk use that. Autodesk has changed from a product to platform company. How can customers of Autodesk work with the company, for example, if they build applications on top of the platform? Is there an app store for them to distribute their products yeah, as well? Yeah, it's a good question. The Autodesk app store is basically the online resource for millions of Autodesk mm -hmm. customers where they can browse and they can download or they can purchase apps that they need. Now, the app store offers thousands of solutions ranging from very small apps to large enterprise solutions. So today, we have over 4,000 apps available in the app store with 2.3 million downloads a year. If you're interested by publishing your apps in the Autodesk App Store, you can gain immediate access to all of our Autodesk customers and helping you connect what you've developed with the people looking for that kind of a solution. Anyone can submit a product to be published on the Autodesk App Store. So my final question to you, what does great look like for Autodesk in the Asia Pacific? I think great, for me, I focus on the journey, not, not the, the destination. And, and for me, the journey in the Asia Pacific is a journey of progress, a journey of impact, and a journey of, of growth for our people and our customers. So for me, great has got different components, but it's, it's an ongoing journey that we, we think about. So I don't think about great. I think about progress. I think about how we're helping our Asia Pacific customers meet their sustainable goals. I think about how we're partnering to innovate so that we can continue to get our customers in Asia to thrive in a world of constant change and do so in a way that is kinder to the environment and do so in a way that's profitable for them. And I think the last thing I think about the progress is how can we enable both our ecosystem and our teams internally to continue to grow in meaningful ways? How do we create a great environment where our teams can come in to do some of their best works, some of their best work so that they can then partner with our customers to do their, help them do their best work. So for me, it's less about grades, more about ongoing progress. And I think the more we do that, we will be able to enable the success of our customers and partners in meaningful ways that mm. I do believe will eventually contribute to the success of all of this. Harish, many thanks for coming on the show. And it's a very good chat on about your book and also on Autodesk in the Asia-Pacific. So in closing, I have only two very quick questions. My first one, any recommendations that have inspired you recently? Any recommendations that have inspired you? Yeah, could be a book, movie, TV show. Top Gun, Maverick, definitely one that has, <laughs> was inspiring. It's nice, to, it's nice to watch Tom Cruise back in action uh, after all these years. I think from a book standpoint, there have been many, but I think a lot of my inspiration has come from speaking with different people through the course of writing my book. And the reason why it's inspired is because we're not alone. And we all need constant reminders that we're not alone. And we all need constant reminders that quite genuinely the philosophy of Ubuntu is real because it takes an entire tribe 
to help us to progress and to go forward. And for me, that's been an inspiration and a, and a big awakening and a reminder that asking for help and collaborating and partnering is going to be an ongoing journey for all of us in order for us to grow and succeed. And how does my audience find you? Well, I work for Autodesk Asia, so you can find me in Autodesk, harish.k at autodesk.com or on LinkedIn. Connect with me on LinkedIn and Inter. And you can definitely find us on any podcast platform and definitely tweet to us at Analyze Asia, A-N-A-L-Y-S-E Asia. And of course, give us your feedback and give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. Harish, many thanks for coming on the show and I look forward to continue to talk to you on different matters. Thank you. Thanks, Bernard. Good being here. Thanks for having me.